I want to take a look at at something else uh, this morning that, again, I think is just so, so, so countercultural. So far, we've looked at simplicity. We've looked at slowing. And by the way, if you see anything going on with the screens behind us, we're having a few technical glitches today. Don't try not to get too distracted because part of the series is trying to fight back against distraction. So try not to get distracted, okay? Um, but we've looked at simplicity and we've looked at slowing. Slowing was last week. Simplicity uh, is not about living a superficial life. In fact, simplicity is the opposite of uh, simplicity is the opposite of superficial. Simplicity is when we are actually prioritizing and we're focused, and where we try not to allow our lives, our our physical lives, our schedules, our budgets, our emotional lives become so cluttered that we can't actually. Uh, prioritize what matters most to us. And so it's not necessarily pushing you towards minimalism. It's just, it's just, and, and that's why all of these things apply differently to different people, but it's looking at where do we need to declutter a little bit so that we can truly focus on what matters most. And so today I want to talk about another, uh, what I believe is very, very countercultural uh, idea, although we do it without realizing, um, but it's this idea of surrender. Surrender. Whether we realize it or not, uh, we all surrender to a way of life. We all surrender to a certain worldview. We all surrender to a certain paradigm. Um, uh, I get it that, that we ultimately want freedom. And the truth is, we are free. We, you, you have a free will. In fact, the moment you stop believing you have a free will, you lose agency and you actually become a victim or a, or a slave. Um, but actually, we all do have freedom. We have freedom to choose. Uh, the only challenge that we obviously find is that normally when we are free to choose, we're also bound by the consequences of that freedom of choice, right? So I'm free to speed, but then I also have to accept that I'm bound to having to pay that traffic fine. Although in South Africa, you might get away with it, but I wouldn't suggest that because that's not ethical. Um, you may be free to, to abuse your body. It's your body. It is your body. You're allowed to do what you want to with your body, sexually, physically, dietary-wise, uh, lack of sleep. Like, you are free, but, but you are going to be bound to the consequences. Um, there, is a, there is a principle. Even if you don't believe the Bible, there is a principle of sowing and reaping, although it is a biblical principle. But, it, but you don't have to agree with the Bible to agree with me that you're going to reap what you sow. Just like, just like you're free to jump off a cliff, but you are bound by gravity, right? Guys, I know I'm being deeply profound this morning. Hang in there. Okay, hang in there. I know, I know, I know. I know this is really simple. But I believe that when we surrender to, to the right person and to the right way of life, I actually honestly do believe that we, that we actually come to find the life that we're aching for at the deepest level. I think that we come to find life that the Bible calls truly life or abundant life or life that is, that is full and flourishing. But the life that I think we're called to surrender to or the way that we're called to surrender to is often very counterintuitive and at first it might, it might really mess with our heads. I want to read a passage of scripture to you that if you've been around for a while, you've heard us read it a few times and you're going to hear us read it many, 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 many many, many more times if you stick around in our church. Um, and it's because, I, because this passage has had a deep effect on my own life. I mean, in fact, at one point a couple of years ago, I probably spent about two weeks just meditating on this passage, just chewing on it, 
um, like writing it out, and I, I hate writing, I never write, I'm a forced left hand because of my finger, um, but I would write it out and I would circle words and just, and just try and chew on. That's all it means to meditate, by the way. You're not, you're not emptying yourself. And, mm, it's, it's just to actually focus on something, it's to chew on something. And, and, and it honestly began a journey for me, which I hope it'll do for you too. This is Jesus speaking. And in Matthew 11, verse 28, by the way, we have it on our wall. That's, that's how important it is to us. But reading from, by the way, someone asked me last week, great question. When we have the little letters at the bottom, NLT, that just stands for New Living Translation. It's the version, there are many English versions of the Bible. It's just the version that we're reading from. If we can't find any other version, we may read from the ESV, which is Moffat's preference. But if I have a choice, I'll normally read from the NLT. That's a very weird inside pastor Christian joke. Sorry. All right. Reading from verse 28. Then Jesus said, come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens. And by the way, I just wonder if this has ever been more relevant than in 2020. Come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens. And by the way, heavy burdens are all relative. You might think that your issues don't compare to someone else's. No, it's all relative. If you're feeling weighed down, there's a good chance that this invitation is for you. And then I love how he says, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you. Because I am humble and gentle at heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. My yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. By the way, if you have the Bible, the, the YouVersion Bible app on your phones, you're welcome to just go along and find events. You'll find View Church Milton, and you can get these notes on your phone as well, as long as you don't do anything else on your phone. God's watching. Okay, I'm just saying. I'm just saying. So, so again, some of you are familiar with this passage, others are not, but, but this idea of a yoke um, is, is foreign to many of us because we don't live in a farming society. Um, the, the term yoke is not, is not literal. Uh, Jesus wasn't a farmer, he was a teacher. In fact, before he was a teacher, he was a carpenter, so maybe he built physical yokes, but, but he wasn't referring to a literal physical yoke. In fact, a yoke was a common expression in the first century of a rabbi's way of reading the Torah or their set of teachings. So, so it was, it was, so you had these teachers. I guess in today's context, it would be a spiritual leader or, or a pastor, but, but in the, in the, in the tradition of Judaism, you had these rabbis and their, their approach to life, their set of teachings was actually often referred to as a yoke. And it was a set of teachings on how to be human, how to shoulder at times the crippling weight of life. And I'm not going to ask you to put your hand up, but I imagine in a group of size, there'd be lots of us sitting here this morning where we're saying, like, we're carrying weight. And I don't mean that kind of weight. I mean, you know, we're carrying, I don't mean on your stomach, I mean on your shoulders, you know, like, like where you feel like you're carrying weight. And so his way of teaching is actually how to approach this sometimes crippling weight of life, how to approach marriage, divorce, singleness, prayer, money, sex, conflict resolution, government, dealing interpersonally with people, purpose, destiny. It, it was, it's actually his way 
of how to shoulder this load. Now, some of you have seen these literal yokes before. We'll have a picture up, I think, in a moment of two oxen that, that would normally pull a plow or they would pull um, something to help with the farming. Um, if, we don't, if we don't manage to get it up, it's basically like a wooden structure that goes between two oxen. But what's interesting in this case is that, is that in most pictures, you're going to obviously find two, two oxen that look the same. But when we come to Jesus, we have this incredibly superior ox, you know, um, strength, where, where he actually carries the bulk of the load. And he's saying that because of that, because of my ability to help you shoulder the load. And again, some of you know this. You've, maybe you've had young kids or, or you have a young nephew or niece or, you, or, or I don't know. You just have, you're friends with people that have young kids. And, and they really want to carry something big. And you want to help them feel like they're carrying something big. So you put your hands you know, underneath and, and they still think they're carrying it. But actually you're carrying 95% of the weight, right? And, and I think that that's to some extent a picture of, of how God is with us. By the way, just on a side note, I mentioned this, I think, in one or two of the services last week, but I think so often we have a skewed view of, of who God is and how he looks at us. And, and I'll ask the question, what if when you get to heaven one day, what if the first question Jesus asks you is not, why didn't you do more for me? Now, now there is an accountability. Matthew 25 tells us that, that there is going to be, and, and other passages, there's going to be an account of a gift for our lives. But what if that's not the first question? What if, what if one of the questions he asks us is, why didn't you let me love you more? Or, or why didn't you let me help you? I wanted to help you. If only you had known how much I loved you and, and love you. So this isn't, a, this isn't something that affects your eternity. This is something that affects how you live now. Because actually, actually, Jesus taught us to pray, not, not about one day. He said, no, let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Your will be done. That's a prayer of surrender. Which is why I think it's also great that it's in that order. If you go read Matthew 6 where Jesus says that this is, this is an example, this is a model of how to pray. Our Father who is in heaven, may your name be honored. Your kingdom come on earth. So in my life, in Milneton, at your place of work, at your school, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. What if he's actually wanting to bring a bit of heaven into your life now? And in order to do that, he's needing us to actually trust him and surrender to him where we say, your, not my will, your will be done. You see, what made Jesus unique wasn't that he had a yoke. All teachers, all rabbis had a yoke. What made Jesus unique is that he had what he called an easy yoke. I just want you to think about that for a bit, especially if you've been in church for a while. If you've been around Christianity for a while, that, that, that might sound quite foreign to you because if you're honest, for the most part, you feel like it's actually quite a, it must be quite a challenging yoke. Like if it's God, it must be tough. If it's Jesus, it must be painful. If it's, if it's right, if it's righteous, then it must be, like I must have to suffer a bit. Have you ever, have you ever heard messages like that? Where, I mean, it's not, they, you're not being told that outright, but where you almost feel like unless you're suffering, unless you're willing to die as a martyr, maybe you don't actually really like God all that much. Okay, I'm the only one that gets into those conferences and hears those things. All right. I want to read this again to you very slowly. Just, just allow 
each phrase to kind of almost just, just digest a little bit, to wash over you a little bit. This is Jesus speaking, and he says, come to me. Like this is an invitation. Come to me. All of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens. I love how he's not saying, first get rid of all your burdens. First get rid of all your junk. First get rid of all your issues. First get rid of all your baggage. I love that he's, I think he's basically saying, come to me as you are. Come with your burdens. Come with your questions and your doubts, by the way. I really don't think that God is intimidated by your doubts. In fact, I think that it's, that is deceptive to think that you have to get all your questions sorted out before you can follow Jesus. If you actually read the accounts of the disciples in the New Testament, they had lots of questions and lots of doubts, but they followed Jesus in order to settle those doubts. And again, I think maybe just the way that we do this sometimes, the way I'm saying we as in pastors, and the way that we might do this as Christians, that we might give you this impression that there's a line that you have to cross, that, and, that, and that once you are thoroughly convinced, once there's no more doubt, and you're willing to pray a magical prayer, then, then, then like you're in. But what if, what if you can actually begin a relationship with God before you're even sure? What if you can actually start following Him in order to see whether or not these truths about Him and His way of life is actually self-validating? That's why I'll often say, you don't have to believe the Bible to read it. I actually think you need to read the Bible in order to believe it. You actually need to read it in order to apply it and in order to do something with it. And then you start realizing, this really does seem to work. And slowly but surely, you become more and more convinced. And then he says, I will give you rest. And I really do believe that that there's something in our hearts that are that's actually aching for rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you. Imagine someone whose life you really respect, like just their life as a whole, like they're healthy, they seem to have great relationships, they, they, they're living a meaningful life, they, they, they're making a difference, like just everything about them just seems so rounded, balanced, healthy. Imagine that person committing to walking with you, to coaching you, as, as often as you will allow them. They're not going to impose. They're saying, you let me know. As often as you will allow, I'm, I'm, I'm available. Imagine that person making themselves available to you. Jesus is inviting us to allow him to teach us because he says, I am humble and gentle at heart. I don't think there are any ulterior motives. He, he knows who you are made to be. He knows how to best shape you, and you will find rest for your souls. On the deepest level, I think so many of us, without even realizing it, are addicted to stimulation. And it's actually, I think, often a, a sign, a, a warning bell of a much deeper aching of our souls for rest, for meaning, it's, I think it reveals an aching in our hearts to find home. And by the way, for those of you that, that are familiar with the passage in John 15 where Jesus, again, he's talking and he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He says, my father's the gardener. And he says, 
in some of the, some translations in the English version, he says, come and abide in me. Right? Anyone familiar with that language? Abide in me. If you all abide in the vine. Jesus is saying, if you all abide in me and I abide in you. You know that that word abide actually comes from the same word where you get abode. And those of you that are old enough know that the word abode means home. Like, like what is your abode or where is his abode? He's actually another way of saying, where is his home? I think Jesus is saying, when we will make our home in him. And allow him to make his home in us. You can't help it. You're going to find life. You're going to have fruit formed in you. Is this making sense to anybody? There's a deep aching in our souls, but it takes us surrendering to his yoke, which is his way of life. And then he goes on, for my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. Now, if I'm honest with you, when I first started meditating on this passage, I'm like, really? Really? You don't have to be cynical. I'm just saying sometimes I will read these things and think like, okay, but that's one passage. Like, is that consistent with the rest of Scripture? Is, are, we, are we maybe manipulating this you know, to kind of fit our own filter, our own perspective, our own preference? But, but I think that the more you read about Jesus' life, it was, it was actually the religious leaders that actually put heavy burdens onto people. Jesus actually kept inviting people to life, to something that would produce healthy fruit. Frederick Dale Bruner is a top scholar on the Gospel of Matthew, which is where this passage is found. And he, he says the following, A yoke is a work instrument. Thus, when Jesus offers a yoke, he offers what we might think tired workers need least. They need a mattress or a vacation. All right? Not a yoke. But Jesus realizes, I love this line, that the most restful gift he can give to the tired is a new way to carry life. A fresh way to bear responsibilities. Realism sees that life is a succession of burdens. So we're acknowledging life is, life's, we're not saying that life is easy, we're saying that the yoke is easy. Realism sees that life is a succession of burdens we cannot get away from. Thus, instead of offering escape, Jesus offers equipment. I love that line. Instead of offering escape, which is what our human nature wants when we're feeling stressed and tired and heavy laden. Instead of offering escape, he offers equipment. Jesus means that obedience to his Sermon on the Mount, which is his yoke, will develop in us a way of carrying life that will give more rest than the way we have been living. Does this, does this resonate with anybody? He's inviting us to a way of life. Dallas Willard also refers to the secret, or referred, rather, he passed away, to the secret of the easy yoke. And he says, in this truth lies the secret of the easy yoke. The secret involves living as Jesus lived. I don't want you to miss this. Living as Jesus lived in the entirety of his life, adopting his overall lifestyle. Our mistake is to think that following Jesus consists in loving our enemies, going the second mile, turning the other cheek, suffering patiently while living the rest of our lives just as everyone else around us does. And it's a strategy bound to fail. Like this actually makes sense, eh? Or to put it one more way, John Mark Homer says, if you want to experience the life of Jesus, you have to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. 
The whole point of apprenticeship is to model all of your life after Jesus. And in doing so, to recover your soul. I love how he puts this next part. To have the warped part of you put back into shape. To experience healing in the deepest parts of your being. To experience what Jesus called life to the full. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm about to say to you. Because there's a place for this. There there is. Truly, there is a place for this. There's a place for an encounter with God. But then there's a place for living with God. And what we're talking about here is not necessarily what takes place at a prayer line. Now, there is some stuff that takes place as you, as you connect with God or as someone maybe prays for you. There is something that can take place. But there is a deeper work that I think God wants to do longer term if we will surrender ourselves to His way of life and where, and where slowly but surely we try and live the life. We try and model ourselves, replicate the life that Jesus lived. Just in case you're having doubts that this isn't anywhere else in Scripture, 1 John, 1 John, chapter 2, verse 6 in the New Living Translation. says that those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. In other words, and, and I think that this is emphasized in various passages in the New Testament, it's not what you declare. In other words, it's not just what you believe theoretically. It's like, am I, do I believe in Jesus or am I following Jesus? The reason I say that, and again, I'm so cautious with, with these metaphors, and not metaphors, these references, but the devil and the demons believe in Jesus. So I've got to ask myself, is there anything different about my belief? So, so it's not just believing that he's the son of God or believing that he died for our sins. Like, Satan's more convinced of that than anybody. It's, it's a question of, okay, so that happened, and that's, and that's really good. Am I going to accept that? Am I going to respond to that? And our response is to follow. Now, I want to be very clear. It's not to follow simply by ticking a box of man-made rules. It's a journey that requires a relationship. It's a relation. You see, you see, I would love someone to give me all the rules. Just give me all the boxes to tick. Because it's technical, I like structure, I like, I like detail, I like getting it right. I want to get it right. But then I wouldn't need a relationship with God. We need, I'm telling you that God deliberately allows for gaps. Even, I think, in the Bible, to require us to need a relationship with Him. Otherwise, it would just be another religion. It would just be a case of ticking boxes. We, we put it this way in our church where we talk about being apprentices of Jesus and that is to organize your life around three basic goals and that is to be with Jesus, become like Jesus and do what Jesus would do if he were you. To position ourselves to be with Jesus I don't think we can help it. We will become like Jesus and to do what Jesus would do if he were you. And I've got to tell you, that third question, that challenges me sometimes. And then many times I'm like, I don't know what Jesus would do right now. I don't think I'm even feeling what Jesus would feel right now. I'm feeling ugly stuff. But then I've got to go back to, okay, well, I can't try and do what Jesus did without being with Jesus. I can't become like Jesus if I won't be with Jesus. 
There is such a difference between knowing about someone and spending time with someone. And I think that that's the biggest, the biggest threat to Christianity. In fact, Christianity is actually a man-made, like it's a, it's a newish man-made term. Like, like, like Jesus didn't call his followers Christians. He called them disciples and, and asked them to make disciples and followers. In fact, it was actually first in Antioch. So, so, so just so you know, the word Christian is used three times in the New Testament. The word disciple is used 269 times. So the word Christian was just the way for, for them to actually differ, because no longer were they just a group within, within Judaism. So they weren't just, just a group within a group of, of Jewish believers. They, it became so cross-cultural, so, so dynamic, that they had to name them something. So they called them Christians because they were little Christ. They were, they were following after him, which is not a problem. It's just that I think sometimes we will tick that box out of the options instead of realizing, wait, we have to be a follower, a disciple, an apprentice. John 14, verse 6. This is Jesus speaking. And he says that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. I am the way, I am the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. Now, the reason I'm emphasizing this Two reasons. Number one, maybe you've been in the last few weeks messages and and you agreeing with basically what is being shared. And and if you're like me, you might think, hey, there's some other religions that actually get this better than Christians. Like there's certain Eastern religions that actually get slowing down and simplicity better than a lot of Western Christians. And I would agree with you. Sorry if that messes with your head. But my response to that is that truth is truth. And so whether you're applying truth as, as a Buddhist or as a Christian, truth is truth. So I can't say, well, gravity only works for me because I'm a Christian. No, no, God's principles work. But, but, and this is what I'm trying to emphasize. This isn't just about um, making our lives a little bit better. There is a non-negotiable anchor you see, if, if all religions were the same, if all worldviews were the same, ultimately, if they all led to the same place, then Jesus wouldn't say what, he, what I just read to you. He wouldn't say, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Jesus wouldn't have had to die. That's the bottom line. If, if it's all the same, ultimately, and we all have the same intention, we're all you know, heading in the same direction, well, then, then Jesus didn't need to die, and he didn't need to come back to life again. He didn't need to be raised from the dead. Jesus is, guys, then I've got to tear that out of the Bible. I love how Eugene Peterson says that the Jesus way wedded to the Jesus truth brings about the Jesus life. Now listen to this part. But Jesus as the truth gets far more attention than Jesus as the way. Jesus as the way is the most frequently evaded or avoided metaphor among Christians with whom I have worked for 50 years as a North American pastor. Eugene Peterson, who wrote the, the message paraphrase, he's saying that, that with the Christians that he's worked with in North America, and, and I would say that that's pretty much in, in any Western context, he's saying that for the most part, they would agree, they're okay with Jesus being the truth, but don't talk to me about Jesus being the way. 
And that's why we don't experience the fruit that we want to experience in our lives. Your life is the byproduct of your lifestyle. And I think sometimes we get discouraged. Sometimes we land up doing the same thing, hoping for different results. Sometimes you come to a service like this and maybe you're encouraged and maybe you're motivated and maybe you came to five days of, of focus and maybe you fasted a bit and maybe, maybe you, you know, you, something happened and sparked you. But then, you know, we, you go home and try and muster up all the willpower you can. And you come to find that willpower is limited. And it doesn't, I mean, has anyone noticed that you eat a better breakfast than dinner sometimes? Or that it's easier to eat the right stuff in the morning than what you want to eat in the afternoon or, or after supper? Or that, or that, I don't know. In other words, our willpower is, is guys, it's finite. I heard John Ortberg say the other day that, that, that because our willpower gets depleted so quickly and, and our emotions get depleted so quickly, he says, now again, you, you might want to go and exercise this for yourself, but he says, you know what doesn't get exhausted or doesn't get depleted, he says, is surrender. When you, just, when you just keep surrendering, God, what do you want me to do? My answer is yes. God, what's your will? Now, I'm making it sound easier than it is. I know that the challenge for many of us is that we often don't know what his will is. But, but guys, the moment I know what his will is, so another way to put that is to simply do next what you know to be right. Just to do next what you know to be right. Don't, don't wait until, you, until you've figured it all out. Don't wait until God's proven himself in 472 ways before you forgive someone, you know, before you actually practice what he says. How about practicing what he says and see if it works? How about if he says be generous, how about being generous and trying to live a generous life and then, and then evaluating the six months later and saying, is a generous life better than a stingy life? Is fighting for my own way in this relationship? You know, I've been doing this for years. It doesn't seem to be producing much fruit. Let me try a different way. Let me try the easy yoke way. Let me try the way of mercy and grace and patience being, love being patient and, and kind. Surrender to his will. Do, simply do next, the next right thing that you need to do. And I believe that you'll be surprised. I think you'll be encouraged, and the worship team can, can come on up, because we're actually going to do communion. Some of you thinking, woo, we're finishing early. Wait. <laughs> Just wait. We're going to do communion in a few moments, or breaking a bread. And if this is something that's brand new to you, I'll explain it in a moment. But I want to just, I wanna just, just read this, this quote I came across the other day that, that, that really encouraged me, and for the projectionist, it's not the next one, but the last one, by Richard Foster, where it just, it resonated so with me. Where I'm like, yes. In fact, sometimes I'll be in my office reading this stuff and I want to, I want to like shout at somebody. Like, mm, mm. like, like this stuff. I love, I love when people put things that, you, that, that you're wrestling over into, into words. Richard Foster says that we discover that the spirit of compassion we once found so hard is now easy. He, he's talking about if we will position ourselves, if we will, he's actually talking in the context of spiritual disciplines. Now, spiritual disciplines, we'll talk about in the next couple of weeks as well, but it's everything from just spending time with God. It's, it's, it's praying, it's, it's reading your Bible, it's, it's meditation. It's, it's even this, to be honest with you, is a spiritual discipline. If you make church a priority for you, that's a, he's saying, he's saying that, that these things are going to like, like you're not in control of your growth. So use the example of a farmer. You're not in control of your growth. But he's saying, if you'll just prepare the soil, you'll be surprised at how eventually something starts to grow out of it. And then he goes on 
to describe what we're reading now, we discover that the spirit of compassion we once found so hard is now easy. In fact, to be full of bitterness would be the hard thing. Divine love has slipped into our inner spirit and taken over our habit patterns. And then I love this next phrase, in the unguarded moments. In the unguarded moments, there is a spontaneous flow from the inner sanctuary of our lives of love, joy, peace, like, like you're almost surprised. Like it just it starts to come. In other words, it's saying fruit is going to be formed. There is no longer the tiring need to hide our inner selves from others. You're no longer going to have to like dig deep with your willpower and fake being kind at work. And fake being patient with your kids. While your veins are popping out. You know? No, no. He's saying, he's saying somewhere along the line, now, now, don't feel bad if that is the reality for you right now. Again, no guilt and shame. I'm, I'm trying to entice you with a way. There's a way where you're saying that there's somewhere along the line. You, you, don't, you don't control it. You can't make it happen. You can't rush it. But somewhere along the line, if you'll just keep positioning yourself to be with Jesus, somewhere along the line, you're going to become like Jesus. saying, if we will surrender to this way, there is no longer a tiring need to hide our inner selves from others. We do not have to work hard at being good and kind. We are good and kind. To refrain from being good and kind would be the hard work. Because goodness and kindness are part of your nature. I'm like, yes, Jesus, please, I'll have more of that. Like, I need more of that. I know enough of the right stuff. That's not my problem. My problem is slowing down to be with Jesus often enough, consistently enough, surrendered enough, so that He can form in me what only He can form in me. So that He can form in me what willpower alone cannot form in me. So that He can form in me what knowledge alone cannot form in me. We need to surrender to the easy yoke. We need to surrender to a way of life. The reason why I'm almost like pausing in the middle of the series is to say that what we've spoken about were things like simplicity and slowing. Like these aren't just nice little tweaks. It's a way of life. What we're going to talk about in the next couple of weeks is not just like nice if you want to apply it. I mean, it is, but it's actually a way of life. Unless we will follow Jesus' lifestyle, we're not going to experience the life that he offers to us. And so what I'm wanting you to do as we partake in communion is I want you to be real with God because again, he's not surprised when you're honest. You're the only one that's surprised when you get honest with God. Okay? God's not surprised. I want you to be honest with God. And maybe you even want to ask him, Lord, is there, is there anything that you want to point out to me? Help me to surrender. Lord, is there a habit? Is there a, is there a pattern? Is there something that you want me to, to shift in my life? And then I want you to just honestly respond to me. And the reason that we're doing that over communion, communion reminds us of what Jesus did at the cross. It reminds us of that which separates following him from anybody else. We're not, following Jesus is not like following the prophet Muhammad. I, I don't mean to be disrespectful. It's just not the same. Muhammad didn't die for me. Buddha didn't die for me. They're in their graves. 
Okay, Jesus died for me. He paid the price for my sins that I could never pay. And He invites me to receive that forgiveness and to follow Him. And so for for Christians, for, for people that are believers, that are trying to follow Him, communion is a time for you to reflect and to respond and to follow 